Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, I'm just not scared of being embarrassed. I don't like it, but I'm not scared of it. And once you give yourself that gift, you are liberated. Was there ever like an oh shit moment where like you realized what you were getting yourself into? Well, there were a lot. I mean, the first thing that he said, I told him to make himself at, at, at home. I told him that my home is his home. And he said, nah, he said, I don't have a home. And I said, no, no, it's just an expression. He said, I don't operate in expressions. Let's go. I can't believe I have Jesse Itzler in the house. Jesse, how's it going? I'm so psyched to be here. And did I say your name right, by the way? Itzler? Yeah. Yep. Okay, good. Jesse, I, I actually want to talk about your background a little bit. You also wrote this book, this amazing book, Living with a Seal, 31 Days Training with the Toughest Man on the Planet. I want to dive deeply into that. And I want to talk about your background. I'm a little nervous. I'll tell you why I'm nervous. You did a great podcast already with my good friend Lewis Howes, where you went over into your background. It was it was solid. You you talked about everything. And in the book, you talk about everything. So I want to kind of get to some key points in your bio because I, then I have questions. Cool. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll just give the brief summary and then I want to ask you about it. So you were unbelievably a rapper. And by the way, you don't look like a rapper. <laughs> and I, you probably looked less like a rapper in 1992 <laughs> than you do now. Um, then you started, uh, among other things, Marquee Jets, which you sold to ultimately to Berkshire Hathaway, I guess, through their NetJets subsidiary. Um, it was a private jet company. Then you're a part owner of the Atlanta Hawks. And then in, I guess it was 2010, the end of 2010, you invited this incredible physical specimen you call Seal to move into your house for 31 days to train you. And in the beginning, it's like you're showing him around the house and he's like, nah, bro, let's just go to the gym. And he starts right away destroying your body until the point where you're running like miles in blizzards. Or like When I say miles, you're running like 20 miles in blizzards. You're doing a thousand push-ups a day. You're doing other stuff that I can't even imagine as physically possible. And part of his whole training was, is no matter where you think you are, no matter how burnt or tired you are, you can always do 40% more. And I thought that was like an, such an important message in the book. But I want to let you talk. I want to ask first about the rapper thing. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> well, I grew up in, in Long Island. Um, I think one of the greatest gifts my parents gave to me, and they 
probably didn't even realize at the time is I grew up in a town with diversity and different cultures, different people. Uh, so I was exposed when rap was, uh, you know, starting to really emerge and get momentum in the mid, early to mid 80s. I was in high school and I was just around it because of the town I lived in, you know, I got exposed to it. And I love the newness. I love just like, I couldn't wait to see where this was going. I just felt in my gut that this is going to be something I wanted to be a part of early on. But we were the same age, right? And I was really into rap and hip-hop as well. In fact, I learned all about breakdancing, the whole thing. But I would never have thought, okay, I'm going to go be a rapper now. Like, that just didn't enter my mind. Well, it didn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't like I set out and said, okay, I'm going to be, I want to go make a record right away. I just fell in love with, you know, I got into the whole breakdancing thing. It's crazy. I know I don't look the part. Um, I don't look the part. <laughs> I started going to the to the roller skating rinks my, you know, sophomore year, every Friday and Saturday in Queens and Bayside and um, Laces in Long Island. And I just got into it, you know, and that my friends that I was hanging around, like, that's what that's what we were into. And when they started having little rap battles, I would get into the mix. And then when I went to college, you know, I had, an, I had a problem. I knew I really wanted to get into this business. And now records were starting to come out. Videos were coming out. CDs were coming out. And I really wanted to, to, to try to be a part of it. The problem was I didn't play an instrument. I'd never been in a studio. I can sing. And my dad owned the plumbing supply house. He knew no, he was not connected to anyone in music. So in any part of the world, no one would have ever given you quote-unquote permission to say, okay, yeah, why don't you become a musician now? <laughs> right. I didn't. I had no background, no experience, and I had no connections. In fact, the way that I was making my first demo tapes was I was recording it on my answering machine. So I was playing an instrumental on like my house system, and then I would cr- write whatever I was going to write and leave it on my answering machine. And to try to get music executives to like listen to me, I got a list of all the CEOs of all the major labels, and I would call them. And if they answered, I would hang up. But if I got their answering machine, I would basically be like, hey, Billy Joel's looking for you and give him my number, trying to get him to call my answering machine to hear my tape. But of course that didn't work. But, but Did that's anyone how, return the call? Well, you know what? It, it, I started. I called all my friends because I, I started trying to get a following to, to people that would listen to my answering machine. I would change the, the song every day. I'd write a new rap. And I did get the ear of a producer that ultimately did my demo. Huh. Yeah, so... So, so uh, but... Did anyone call expecting to hear Billy talk to Billy Joel? Were they upset? No, no, it never happened. But, you know, it, it started like people would call him like, oh, you know, wrong number. Oh, I heard about this through a friend. So it started to it started to get a little bit of buzz. But when you finally um, went out to Delicious Vinyl to talk to, the, uh, and this was, they were putting out, um, you know, Tone Loke and Young MC. These were like, these were like the best-selling songs since the Beatles, actually. Yeah. And you wanted to get the ear of Mike Ross, the, the boss there, and you basically called up and said, this is Dana Dane. Yeah, I did. Uh, can I have an appointment? Well, I had sent out, a when all my friends were sending out resumes for, you know, after college, I didn't want to, I didn't have a resume. I didn't want to have a resume. I didn't want to work for anybody. This is what I wanted to do. So I sent out my cassette demo to all the music. I didn't get one single response back. And one day when I was at the studio in Queens where I was working at, in Corona, Queens at the time, uh, the, the artist before me, Dana Dane, a Brooklyn-born, one of my favorite rappers, Great rapper. left his advanced copy of his album, his second album that no one had heard. I loved his first album. 
on the board. So I, I said, I want to listen to this. So I borrowed it, quote unquote. And um, when I was flying out to LA a couple of days later, I read that the owners of Delicious Vinyl, this really hot independent label, were huge fans of Dana Dane. So I just cold called the label. And um, initially I said I was me, but I had Dana's tape and he wanted it, the guy to hear it. And they got really confused and I played on that confusion until the secretary came back on and said, Dana, Mike will see you at two o'clock today if you want to come in. So I buzzed myself in as Dana Dane and and that was it. Well, and you know, you even say later, you quote Harry Truman in, in the book, you say, if you can't control, confuse. Yeah. And so you figured you would either control or ride that confusion somehow and then explain it later. Because you did get in the office and you said, oh, Dana Dane's running late. Listen to my demo tape first. And I, I wanted it so bad that I didn't care about the consequences. If this was going to get my foot in the door because they thought I was Dana Dane, I'm going to ride it until they throw me out of the office. I think that's a key thing. You wanted it so bad you didn't care about the consequences. So I want to just, I want to get back to this because there's one more question I have there, but you you do the same thing when you start, you know, marquee jets. So this is, you're like 29 years old and you figured, ah, and you have nothing, you know, you have some cash, but you have no jets or experience in the airplane industry or whatever. And you figure, okay, I'm going to start essentially the equivalent of an airline. Right. And, you know, describe what happened then, because well, it's related. Yeah, well, we had the idea to start a private jet card company, except one problem, we had no airplanes. Uh, NetJets had all the airplanes, so we had to convince NetJets to let us use their airplanes for our program or our idea. So I called up the owner of, of NetJets. Um, Just I, like that? Yeah, I had done a favor for his daughter. He didn't even know who I was. He had no idea who I was, and I started just kind of really confusing him a lot on the phone until I finally got a, a meeting. And uh, my partner and I went in there and, and, and got thrown out in about 12 minutes. They didn't like our pitch. And I think the direct quote was, I'll never give. Yeah, we're 29. <laughs> and uh, we left the, the office and then his partner came out and said, look, that was really good. You know, no one gets 12 minutes with Rich Santulli, who was the CEO. He said, if you guys just maybe tweak this a little bit, come back when you have it a little bit more baked. And we came back a week later. We said, you know what? We can't do a PowerPoint. They're never going to buy a PowerPoint. We got to bring this to life. And we brought our own focus group in and just set up 10 chairs, five chairs, whatever it was, in front of their board table. And one by one, we had various, you know, um, athletes, entertainers. We had a sports agent, a Wall Street guy stand up. And, and give a testimonial to why they liked, why they would buy into our program. And it's just not like, average, you had like Run DMC yeah. in the room. Yeah, yeah, we had Carl Banks, <laughs> Run DMC. We had, uh, because you know what? We had to convince them that um, our generation would buy into a program like this. They were selling fractions of planes. It was very expensive. It was mostly corporate. And they need to hear directly from these guys that, that they and their friends that there was a wide enough audience to do it. And it worked. And a year later, we were we were you know we had more customers than NetJets. So you had you had up to five billion in sales, and then you sold um, I guess two NetJets, yeah. right? When they were owned by Berkshire Hathaway by by Warren Buffett. Uh, I don't know if it was ever disclosed. Can you say how much you sold for? It was you know it's never been disclosed, but you know, comfortable, comfortable, good. Well, here's what I think is really interesting, and 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 the the kind of parallel between the getting the record deal and this, it's almost like you created. This alternate reality, like, oh, I'm already a rapper you should be listening to. Or, oh, I'm already uh, an airline, you know, type company you should be listening to. You create this alternate reality. You're going back into Mike Ross's office, and uh, he suddenly realizes 
you're not Dana Dane. And I know you said Dana Dane's running late, but at any point did he realize, oh my God, I was just totally scammed? No, you know, we connected right away. We connected right away. I think, I don't know, he, something with my mannerism or whatever or whatever, but we, we did connect. And I said, you know, I just said to him, while we wait, do you mind if I just throw my cassette in? I worked with Dana at the same studio. Which was not really which, which a lie. Is, which is true. Yeah. And I said, uh, I think you'll like it. It's very, like, you know, it's very up Lokes Alley. And he said, all right, put it in. He was kind of really super cool about it. And uh, when he first walked in, he was definitely like, who are you? And then I played, as soon as I played my song on my demo, College Girls, everything changed. And then so he, first he gave you a deal to write lyrics for one of Tone Loke's songs. And you, within, two hour, within two hours, you had the lyrics for four songs written. Right. And did those songs do well? Were they put, did Tone Loke use them? Uh, yep, he used two of them. Two of them made it to the album. And uh, Were they hits? Um, not like Wild Thing or, or Funky Cold Medina, but they made the album, which for me was super, was equal to hit. It didn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Success to me just meant being part of the game. Yeah, you right. Know? Everything else was gravy. And seeing my name on Loke's album, you know, he was a guy that I loved. As, yeah. Um, so, so that was really exciting. And then, and then he gave me my own deal. So I started focus, shifting my energy and focusing on that. And, um, you know, I guess that deal didn't work out as well as you would have hoped. It's not like you became the vanilla ice of the mid-90s right. or anything. Um, so what happened after that? Like, was it disappointing to you when the album fell through? Or like you said, you were just happy being part of the game? Well, I made a mistake. I thought that, you know, once I got signed, my work was over. And I thought, okay, they have Loke, they have Young, they just want to Grammy for Bust a Move. You know, I'm a lock city. You know, I just have to show up and say the words. And I lost a lot of the emotion and drive, and I just put it into, it just kind of went into the system versus me really focusing on the product. But I thought the um, White Girls song was great and the video's good. Uh... It, it it was, it, it, and I mean, at the time, in the 90s, early 90s, but, um, but you know, even just the name, my name, my brand, the images, the video, it just wasn't thought out the way I would do it if I did it, if I had a chance to do it over. So it's a little bit of a regret of mine. Um, that the What's pro- the regret part? Like that you didn't put more energy into the marketing or into the kind into, of... Into the songs, into the marketing. I listened to them. They were busy with two other artists, you know. Mm. Um, I would have done a different single first. I would have... Just a lot of things. And it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback on all this stuff. And I was only 21 years old. I had no idea. With no experience, no lawyer. I mean, I, nothing. Mm. Um, but looking back on it now, because now, you know, having had businesses and had an egg on my f- success, for sure, but also egg on my face and make mistakes and et cetera, I realize how important product is, you know? And... Um, I would have spent a lot more time on just making the best product, the best song, every song, as good as it could possibly be. I think I think in a lot of industries this happens where you get kind of the blessing of the gatekeepers, in this case, you know, the head of the record label, and you think, okay, my job was just to get me to this point, then they're going to take over because they know what to do. But I think in whether you're writing a book, a movie, starting a business where you get venture capital funding, I think people still have to realize, no, these people are banking on me to do to keep doing what I'm doing, and most people I think stop at that point. When you're the brand, like you're in, and you're in, if you're an artist, you are the brand. You know, you really can't rely on anybody because if you you can rely on someone and put your eggs in someone's basket, a manager, a record label, lawyer, whoever. If they get sick, if all of a sudden another artist takes off or project takes off, 
you're not the focus. They're going to where, where, the, where the gold is. And, you know, for me, I was relying on people, and they, had, they were distracted. They had other things going on. Loke's new album, this project, and, you know, on to the next. And I couldn't afford to be on to the next. And it was a very powerful lesson. So when my records didn't sell as many as I thought or hoped or dreamed of, and they, I got a tap on the shoulder and said, sorry, we're not doing a second album, you know, I, I, knew, I knew that I wanted, first of all, I didn't have a choice. The only thing that I, I could do at this point in my life, I had two things I could put on my resume, failed rapper or the summer before that I was a kiddie pool attendant. So I really didn't have, this would be tough to get a job as a failed rapper and a kiddie pool attendant So uh, guy. So I, I knew that I was sort of wanted to stay in this lane, um, but I also felt like this wasn't really failure. It was just a little nudge that I was off course. Well, it kind of, it kind of you then transformed it into you took control over what you were doing and, and, and almost the same style of music you started doing, you invented the genre of these uh, this arena songs like sports rap and sports music. You did the Go New York Go for the Knicks right. and created a whole business out of that. Right. And it's sort of like what you, what you talk about, it, taking control of yourself and this kind of thing. I did. You know, I, I started selling, um, I did a song for the Knicks, a theme song for the Knicks in 91 or 2, 92, called Go New York Go. It was successful. And I realized, wow, you know what? There's a new category here. I can create a whole new category, sports music. And I'm not competing with 10,000 records at Tower Records, at this record store. No one else is doing it. So that's what I started doing. And I, I you know, um, it was kind of like an eat what you kill mentality, creative mentality. I, I had to do, you know, the, the songs, the music, the selling, the shipping, everything. And I loved it because I knew that it was getting done. And no one cared about it. I mean, I would put every stamp on perfect, like right. I mean, every, le- because it was mine. And it was, it was, if it, it was just, everything was mine. And I loved that feeling. I loved it. And I spent so much time and I learned my lesson about the product and how important it is. And I just started taking great care. And, and that business became a success. And, you know, there's, an, there's another example, at least one that I could think of from the book where you, you, you didn't care about the consequences so much um, that you were able to get something done, which is when Foot Locker approached you and you and wanted you to have, um, and you said you were going to have Grant Hill on a recording for them, and then you you didn't even know Grant Hill, and bam, you were able to do it. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always like I guess one of the other themes has kind of been just getting my foot in the door and figuring it all out after. Um, foot Locker came up came to us. I was doing jingles and sports songs. And they wanted to do something around the holiday, and they were only going to sign us as a firm. Firm, it's like me and you know, it's like two people. Um, if we could deliver athletes and entertainers to participate in this project, to say a couple of lines on these radio ads, and they specifically wanted Grant Hill. And in the meeting, they said, "Could you, can, you know, can you get Grant Hill?" And I said, "Absolutely, I can get Grant. Come on, he's Grant's easy." Not in no Grand Hill, and and obviously I had no connection to him at the time. Uh, now, ironically, we're partners, but um, but so they gave us the account. They said, "All right, go get him. Here's your list of guys." And um, I blew an opportunity to get Grant when he was at a a, a, a a signing, sneaker signing or something in New York, and I got chewed out by the CEO. You know, I thought you were gonna get Grand Hill, and he was in New York. Where were you? And I said, "I'm getting him tonight." I'm seeing Grant tonight. So I had 24 hours to track him down and get him to record, basically to say, hey, this is Grant Hill. And this Christmas, my family, me, we're, we'll be shopping at Foot Locker. You know, like, how am I going to do that? 
So I saw that he was playing in Atlanta that night. I jumped on a plane. I walked into the arena with the band. Like I was like, like I was part of the band that was rehearsing for the national anthem. And I waited like eight hours on a payphone, like looking like I was on a call with like a lawyer. The police security would come back, like, not down in the middle of the call, you know, like that kind of thing. And then when the magic, who we was playing for at the time, uh, walked into the arena, I hung up the phone. And I looked at Grant, and I think he saw in my face that I was out of a job or something was going to happen. And I <laughs> whispered in his ear, like, man, I, I, I need to, to get some something I missed for Foot Locker. Were you just at Foot Locker? He's like, yeah. I was like, I was the guy that was supposed to show up and, and get that recording. He had no idea what I was talking about. Confused. Yeah. I said, well, can we just get it now? Because I'm out of a job. If I don't go back, I flew here. I paid for my own ticket. I totally messed up. And again, he has no idea what I'm talking about. And he said, all right, come with me in, uh, into the locker room. Let's do it. So I go in the locker room, and it was so loud because all the players were in there. He goes, let's go into the, uh, into the bathroom. So he literally went into, like, the urinal thing. And, uh, and he read these cue cards that I, I wrote out. And in the middle of the second one, he stopped, and he said to me, who are you again? And what's this for? <laughs> I said, it's the Foot Locker thing. Fila, your agent. You know, I, I'm the guy. <laughs> and he's like, all right. And, like, two days later, it was on the air. That's incredible. So, I mean, uh, it's not just about product then. It's also about go not caring about the consequences and getting what you need to get. Now, like, did you ever get in trouble for something like that? Like, did Grant Hill's agent come back and sue Foot Locker? Like, what happened? No, I mean, you know, he he was, he had done some in-stores in Foot Locker, so there was some kind of relation, and he was selling Fila or whatever brand it was. I think it was Fila at the time. So they needed Foot Locker. Everybody needed everybody, and, you know— it just didn't. It didn't. It didn't come back to haunt me. I don't you know now. I don't think I could pull that off. But uh, there's too many I, lawyers around people. Yeah, and- yeah. And um, but you know, there's there's a part of me that's you know, it, everything is so overlawyered now, and everyone's so scared to to do stuff. And you know, sometimes you just have to do it, and you just have to go out there. I'm not saying be reckless and break the law or anything like that. But everything is so simple. Agreements are now twenty have to be at twenty seven pages because everyone's scared of being sued or not doing their job. And whatever happened, just a handshake, right? Like what happened to that? So, so fast forwarding past all this, you had massive entrepreneurial success. You're doing well, and you also were in like great shape. I'm going to 2010. You're you're already in great shape. You were running marathons. Why you you saw this guy who was like above and beyond? He's like a superhero or something. And you were like, this guy has to live in my house for thirty one days. You didn't know him at all, and you wanted to get like totally trained. But you were already like in great shape. What were you What were you thinking right then? Well, what happened was I met him at a at a twenty four hour race. I was running a relay race with friends. We were each taking turns running a mile leg each, and then whatever team runs the most mile in twenty four hours wins the race. This particular guy didn't have a team. He had no no one to relay. <laughs> there was no relay. It was him. And before the race, he was sitting right next to me. He was, you know, it was a, it was a self-supported race, which means you have to bring, they provide nothing. You have to bring everything, your own water, supplies, bananas, tent, whatever. And we had all of that. He had three items. He had a fold-up chair, one bottle of water, one, and a box of crackers. That's it. And he weighed about 280 pounds. He was a really big guy. And sure enough, by mile seven, 70, because of his weight, he had broken all the small bones in both of his feet, literally crushed his bones from all the pounding for running for you know 15 hours. And um, because he only ate crackers, he had 
and his nutrition was terrible. He had kidney failure. He was peeing blood. And I watched this guy get up out of his chair, tape up his feet, and literally with kidney failure and busted bones, run another 30 miles to How run How can you miles. do that with kidney failure? I saw him do it, and that's what I wanted to know. And that's why I called him up. I, I, I cold called him. Which, I, by the way, is another theme of yours is that you have no fear. Just like if you want to be friends with somebody, you reach out, you pick up the phone, you call them. You know, I'm just not scared of being embarrassed. I don't like it, but I'm not scared of it. And once you give yourself that gift, you're liberated. So the consequence was irrelevant to me. What's he going to say? No. You know, it wasn't, and I wanted to meet him. And so I, I Googled him first. He had an amazing backstory. He was a Navy SEAL with an unbelievable backstory. And um, I cold called him, flew out to meet him. And then about five, with no agenda, I just wanted to meet a guy like this. And five minutes into the conversation, I said to myself, Jesse, you know what? Whatever got this guy to get out of the chair with kidney failure and broken bones and whatever else was going on with him and finish another 30 miles after running 70, whatever makes a guy like that tick, I want some of that to rub off on me because all the buckets in my life business, work, personal training, yes, I was in great shape, but clearly I had more in my tank, would be better off if whatever that was, whatever that drive was, whatever that grit was, if I could learn it. So I asked him if he would come live with me and, you know, shortly, a couple of days later, he was at my breakfast table. And so that's an interesting thing because I think the average person can't do that. You know, they can't just say, Hey, to some, they can't just fly out across country, meet a guy, and say, "Move in with me. I'll pay you. I'll take care of everything, and I'm not. I'm going to focus on what you say. Well, you know, in addition to everything else, I, I, what, what? So clearly, you wanted to get out of your comfort zone and learn this new aspect of grit and physical healthiness, healthness, and so on. Um, what would the? How can the average person do what you did, or what would be an analogy? Well, I think they, I, I disagree. I think that they can because mm-hmm. I'm an average person. Yes, I can. This wasn't about money. He never asked me to, how much this is going to cost. Money never came into the equation. So my expense was flying out there and taking the risk um, and then the willingness to have a, somewhat of a stranger come in and live with me. But um, this theme has been something in my life. There's a, a, a book that I read that changed my life in the early 90s called Fit for Life written by a guy named Harvey Diamond. And um, I call, call I, I like the book so much. Years later, I read it nine times. Years later, I just got a thought sitting at my desk one night, like, what in the world is Harvey Diamond doing? And I tracked down his number and I called him. And he's become a close friend of mine. Someone that I speak to, you know, kind of like a Tuesday from uh, with Maury kind of thing for advice, basically weekly. So I think that anyone can do it. Um, if they're not scared of the consequences and, and you know, and, or scared what people are going to think or anything like that. Uh, by the way, because because you read that book and as preparation for this, just for the heck of it, I've only in fruit today so far. So You look like uh, you have a lot of energy. I do. I'm really excited about okay, this. Good, good. So, okay, so he, Seal, as you call him in the book, moves into your house and... Within five minutes, there's no politeness or anything, no showing him around. He's just like, let's get to the gym and start going. Yeah. And did, was there ever like an oh shit moment where like you realize what you were getting yourself into? Well, there were a lot. I mean, the first thing that he said, I told him to make himself at, at, at home. I told him that my home is his home. And he said, nah, he said, I don't have a home. 
And I said, no, no, it's just an expression. Make yourself at home is an expression. And uh, he, looked, he looked me dead in the eye like he was super mad. He can go from zero to 10 pretty fast. He got like to an eight level of like kind of pissed off. And he said, uh, I said, it's just an expression. He said, I don't operate in expressions. Let's go. <laughs> so we went down to the gym and he wanted to see how many pull-ups I could do, kind of just to gauge. This is the first five minutes of a 31-day journey. He just wanted to see what kind of shape I was in. And I did eight. And I dropped down. He said, all right, wait 30 seconds and do it again, which I did. And I got back up on the bar and I did six. And now I'm really feeling it like like my arms are starting to hurt, my chest. He said, all right, wait 30 seconds and try it one more time. And with my legs flailing, I did like three. And I was like barely got my chin over the bar, three. And he said, all right, drop down. He said, um, okay, we're not going to leave here until you do 100 more. And I'm like, you know, that's fantastic in seal land, but that's physically impossible in Jesse Itzler land. <laughs> and um, he basically explained to me how I'm putting all ki- I've been putting all kinds of self-imposed limitations on myself and how I'm capable of so much more. And he, he showed it to me because I stayed there until I did 100, one at a time, but mm-hmm. I did it. And it was a powerful lesson. And the lesson was that we all have so much more in our reserve tank and we're all capable of doing so much more. Um, and unless we push our limits and, and avoid that little, uh, a little pain and discomfort, um, it's the only way to really get better and see what we're made of. You think, you think it's like an evolutionary thing? Like you think the brain to protect us, as soon as we feel any pain at all, it just wants to kind of reel it back before we get hurt. It, it actually acknowledges pain before we're actually doing anything that's harmful. Without question. So, I mean, he would call it the 40% rule. You mentioned it, which is basically when your brain says you're done, you're only 40% done. And, you know, I like to talk about, like, in my own world, just kind of looking at this and saying, all right, well, give me some examples of that. There's 600,000 people that enter marathons in this country every year. And 90, this is a real stat, 98% of them finish the race. And I would bet almost almost all of them experience that tap on the shoulder. It's called the wall, hitting the wall. You've heard the expression hitting the wall. At around mile 18, where their brain says, enough. I'm done. I want to take a seat. I'm, I'm, I don't want to do that anymore. And, you know, why do 98% of the people fight through the wall and finish the race? Part of it is because the, the reward of finishing it and all the training and, you know, the disappointment if they don't, if they quit and the herd mentality, because all that comes into play. But the biggest reason is because they're avoiding that little tap on the shoulder that says stop. And they're going so much further than beyond the wall. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. 
And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No 
insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So it seems like there's an easy analogy in physical activity, like a marathon, because your body actually starts to hurt. But where have you seen this in like, say, business or some kind of mental activity where suddenly you feel like not focusing anymore, you feel like not dealing with a problem, but you just have to put that, push that, you know, 40% more or 50% more or whatever? All the time. I mean, I call it mental. I think it's the, the key to success for in every aspect of your life, whether it's business, training, relationships, anything, it comes down to mental toughness, not motivation, mental toughness, because I could say to you, you know what, James, man, tomorrow we're going to run it. We're going to train for a 10 K and we're gonna, I'm going to get you fired up. We're going to listen to Rocky for a day. We're going to go out. We're going to watch miracle. We're going to watch the best, you know, sports movies. And we're going to listen to the best motivational guys. We're going to start tomorrow morning and you're going to be fired up. We're going to hug it out and we're going to run two miles tomorrow to start our training. And we go out in New York City tomorrow and you open the front door at 6 a.m. and it's cold and the, the rain is hitting you in the face. It's windy. And you're, not, you're like, I don't want to do that. Motivation goes away pretty fast. But it's the mental toughness that gets you out the front door, not the motivation. And it's true in business. It's true, it's true in anything. It's the ability to get past that. Look, we all... It's easy to run and look for the to look for the easy way, the easy door, the fast dollar, the instant this, da 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 da. When you build up your mental toughness, and I think it's a muscle. I think it could be trained. I think it could be built. When you start to build it up, and that's what he did with me on our journey. Every day we did a little something that kind of reset our baseline. It notched it up a little bit. The harder the experience, the more we got notched up a little. And once you change your set point, you raise your baseline from you know wherever it is to a higher level by doing these tough challenges, getting out of your comfort zone, pushing your limits, it never goes back down. And all of a sudden, you start gravitating, say, I don't want to take the easy way. I'm going to take the hard way. Okay, well, I'm, an, I'm starting a business, and it's going to be, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm starting a jet company, and I have no experience. It becomes like, I want to do that. I want to dive into that. I'm going to figure that out. I'm not scared of that road. I, I like that you say it's like a muscle that you have to exercise this mental toughness because I think just starting out and not have never having pushed yourself, I think it's probably difficult for a lot of people. You have to sort of almost have someone like Seal living with you to know what it means to, to have mental toughness. You know, yes and no. So I think we're all born with, with some degree of mental toughness. I call it like an internal mental toughness meter. Mine might be a six. Yours might be a seven. Your, your engineers might be a five. We all have different ones. But by doing certain exercises, by pushing ourselves, by signing up for a race you didn't think you could do, by learning to play an instrument that's frustrating that you didn't, you know, you always want to do what you were scared to, 
by doing nine, 10 push-ups instead of when you only thought you could do nine, whatever it is, you're exercising that muscle. And you're gradually, slowly, through, repet- through being repetitive, consistent, you are gradually going to build that muscle up. And you're gonna, you, your meter will go up. And that's what happened to me. Look, I, I remember when I finished my first marathon, I remember saying to myself, and, and, and when I started, I started training by running 20 minutes a day. And, and I, was, I didn't think I could even go beyond that. Then I, my next goal was 30, then 40, then 58, then 103. I remember my numbers, 103 minutes, exactly. And then I ran my first marathon thinking, I can't go one foot beyond that. Well, four years later, I ran 100 miles nonstop. And a big part of it was convincing myself, having that movie in my head, convincing myself that it was possible, convincing myself that I could do it. You know, if you look at Roger Bannister, who broke the the four-minute mile barrier, everyone thought it was impossible. He spent more time convincing himself that he could do it than actually training on Mm -hmm. the track. Mm -hmm. And when he did it, and people saw that it was possible, I think over, well over 1,000 people have done it now. 100 new people do it every year. Right. So it's, 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 you know, it stems from that movie in your head, that belief that you can do it, and that grit, that resilience, that mental toughness. And I, I really believe if you look at all the greats, not all, there's exceptions, but the majority of them, whether it's athletes, like, you know, Michael Jordan or LeBron or Kobe or whether it's business leaders, sales guys that are great salesmen, they all have a certain level of mental toughness. And it doesn't have to be physical at all. They all have that resilience, that grit, um, and they're not scared to go after it. So during these 31 days, what was a point in the middle where it was like so above and beyond. Because I could see every day he was like pushing you more and more. Like you you were probably thinking at least once a day, this is crazy. There's no way I'm going to do this. What was the worst? What was like the biggest point where it's like, oh my God, I can't believe he's going to make me do this. Because by the way, doing 100 pull-ups sounds to me like the worst. Yeah. But that was the beginning. That was five minutes into it. Um, you know, he, he one day after we went for a 10-mile uh, 10 run in literally a blizzard, I mean a whiteout blizzard, we, I was living on a lake at the time, and the lake was frozen. Kids were playing hockey on the lake. And uh, he took a boulder after the run and said, follow me. And, you know, all, the, all I could think in my head was my mother as a kid telling me over and over, don't go on, walk on frozen ice. Mm-hmm. He walks to the middle of the lake, takes this boulder, not the middle, but out maybe 20 or 30 yards, and starts slamming it on the ice until it cracks. And with his hands, he gets makes a little hole. And then he jumps and takes an ice bath in the middle of the lake and tells me to get in into the lake. Oh, my God. What if the current had, like, swept you below the hole or something? So like, there, there's you're going to go into shock in, like, 40 seconds. Right. There's all kinds of nuances to this. So, you know, I'm knowing that this guy's, you know, 15-plus years in the, in the, as a SEAL. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that he's he knows what he's doing. So he gets out, and then I go in. And as I'm about to, as I'm, as I'm going in, he says, don't put your, don't let your hands or any part of your skin touch the ice after the water because it'll stick. It'll freeze to it. Like your tongue on a, like the kid in Christmas story that puts his tongue on the pole. So I went in, literally, I had to put my shoes on my hands and went in the ice and then crawled out on, on, I was wearing my clothing. And then he's like, man, we got to get inside. You're going to get frostbite if you don't hurry up. Um, And we ran up into the thing and my wife saw the whole thing and, 
And, you know, at the time I didn't understand. I'm like, what is, and, and, and Sarah, my wife even said, what's the medical benefit to this? She asked him, she was livid. And he said, you know, there is none. It's what your husband signed up for. But what he was doing was part of this non-traditional, these non-traditional exercises. It was all about building up the mental toughness. Because when the next little thing that happened that maybe a week ago might seem like, God, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go run in the snow. I don't want It became like, man, I just jumped in a frozen lake. I can do this. And that's how I started approaching things. And you don't need a Navy SEAL to do stuff like this. You know, it could be... Take a cold, it could be take a freezing cold shower there and, and stay in there as long as you can. And when you get out, you, you know, you, 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 it's amazing how you feel. You feel like you accomplished something. You've already kind of gotten out of your comfort zone. You started your day acknowledging that you're going to do things differently today. And you're going to look at things, you know, that, that were hard and not be scared of them. There's all kinds of little things that you can do. And like I said earlier, okay, you're going to do nine push-ups. Do a 10th push-up. There's a book sitting there. You haven't read the book because you don't want to invest the time. Go read the book. You want to learn how to do this? Go take a class. Go do it. You know, and like so many people come back with the excuse, well, I don't have time after a busy day of nine to eight work. I have four, you know, three kids, four kids, and then I want to relax a little bit. People have people have their litany of excuses ready every day for that. I hate that. So, you know, I, I have... Um, when I, when he, when Steele was living with me and we were training for hours a day, I was working a full-time job, spending plenty of time with my wife and my son doing all of his workouts and going to work. You know, for me, I think a lot of us have, what, what's happened is we've all, so many of us have lost, uh, the ability to control our own time. So like, you know, I know you don't read a lot of your emails, so, but, but, um, you know, someone will say, Jess, would you mind having a lunch with a friend of mine? He wants to pick your brain. Now, I don't want to sound That's like That's the worst. <laughs> right. You don't want to sound like a jerk. You feel obligated. So you say yes. So now all of a sudden, one hour of your day, plus you have to get there, get back, blah, 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 is taken up by someone else is controlling your time. And then you're getting a zillion emails and you feel like the urge to respond. And then you have the arrows that come at you. Bills. Someone needs to borrow money. Someone has this. Can you pick this guy up? This is the... You're like, we're constantly dodging arrows and each arrow is time. And if, you know, what I've done is, I, 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 for me, this has worked. I drew a very simple pie chart. And I said, all right, there's 24 hours in a day. I need to sleep seven of them. So I have 17 hours in a day left. Three of them are for me. Three of them are my time. I could do whatever I want. I could go for a run. I could read emails. I can watch TV. I could sit in bed and stare at the ceiling. It doesn't matter. But I need a little bit of time for me. And I don't. I, I feel like a lot of people don't take time for themselves. All right, now I have 14 hours left in the day. I'm going to work a regular week. I'll work eight hours. I have six more hours to do whatever I want. And I already took three for myself. That's, and that time for me is with my family. So I have six hours sitting in a bucket. That could be family time. That could be, you know, I want to go play, learn how to do this. It could be whatever. So the excuses, it's ridiculous. There's so much time in a 24-hour period, and we maximized it. When, the, when, when Seal moved in with me, the one big takeaway for me is how much you can get done in 24 hours. 24 hours is a long time if you don't dilly-dally and you get rid of all these non-essential meetings, calls, distractions. Just say no. 
Start saying no and free up your own time. And do you feel you've kept going, doing that since since Seal left? It's really, really hard to do. I, I totally get it. But yes, way better than I than I did it in the past. I've taken control of my time again, and it feels great. But you know, I still get all those requests, and I'm and quite honestly, I'm not as good as I want to be at saying no. You know, it's a constant for me. It's a constant battle. I have a hard time when someone says, "Hey, I'm starting a new thing. I'm friends with this guy. You know, he's a good friend of yours. Can you give me ten minutes?" You know, it's like, that's a hard thing. Because it's never 10 minutes. It's never 10 minutes. And there's 50 of those. Yeah. And like, you know, um, but now, quite honestly, um, all I have is time. That's all I have. And I don't want to give it to someone else. So, you know, a lot of times when I read a book, I'll decide, was this an information book? Was this a fun book? Uh, uh, Or was this something that could help me change my life? And I try to write down, if it's something that could change my life, I write down the 10 things I learned that or 11 things or however many things I learned that could help me change my life. And I feel your book is one of those books. So I wrote down a bunch of things. Some of them we've already covered, but I just want to make sure um, we talk about uh, some of these others. Uh, and I like what Seal says. I have this written down. Um, if it, if it, I forget if I can't read my own handwriting. If it doesn't suck, don't do it. Right. So, uh, uh, des- so describe that a little bit. Well, yeah. I mean, one of his, Sealisms was every day we had to do something uh, that would make us uncomfortable. And he, he his motto was, if it doesn't suck, we're not going to do it. It's a waste of time. Because, again, the thought was we have to get out of our comfort zone. All the time. All the time. We have to get out of our routine. Routines are great, but routines are also a rut. And what, I, what, what rut did you feel you were in at the time? Because you mentioned you felt you were in a, a rut when you met him. And yet everything was going well. You were probably involved in lots of different businesses. You were, you were building homes. Like, what rut did you really feel psychologically at that time? I wasn't getting better. So uh, my routine was get up, work out, breakfast, go to work, come home, you know, family time, dinner, sleep, repeat. And that's a great existence. But I wasn't getting better. It was the same pattern. And I got lulled into it. It was so comfortable and it was great. It was great. Don't get me wrong. And I thought, I thought, wow, this is amazing. I have great balance. I have a great routine. I'm in my routine. Everything was my routine. I didn't want to get out of my routine. I didn't want to leave. And, and people tout the benefits of routines. Right. When my routine got turned upside down, when this guy moved into my house, that's when I started getting the most benefits. Mm-hmm. See, I changed my thought pattern. I used to like to have, uh, I had a bucket list. Not a big bucket list guy, but there's a couple things I wanted to do that were on my bucket list. Now, I have a fuck it list. And those are things that suck. And those are things that are challenging. And those are things that require preparation, training, planning, maybe failure, right? But those are the things that make me feel most alive. And those are the things that really teach me about me. Not my little bucket list like I want to meet Bono. Like, all right, great. That's cool. I have a picture. Now I have a picture with Bono. It's the stuff. But, you know, like, if you think back to last year, okay, there's 365 days in a year. How many days of 2014 and 15 do you really remember? Uh, You know, I've had a lot of things happen to me in the past year, so... Right, like so a maybe good chunk. A good chunk. But the things that are memorable aren't the things that are in your routine. Right. And I'll tell you, the things that are memorable are the most unpleasant things. Right. And that's just a kind of a biological thing as well. So so for me, I don't remember much about 14 or 15 except for stuff that 
was not pleasant or stuff that I created that wasn't pleasant but was pleasant that I, that I did it. And what do you really want to do with your life? Don't you want to create memories? Don't you want to build your life resume and have the, as many, get as much out of life as you can? Don't you want to look at yourself at the end of the day and say, I, squ- I squeezed every single drip of water out of my personal rag and soul? I mean, the only way to do that, in my opinion, and I'm not saying every day you got to go jump out of an airplane, and but you got to put things on your list over the course of the year, in my opinion, that are fuck it list things. And what would be like, what, let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, he's right, I'm going to do it tomorrow. What's what's maybe the first one or two things they could try to start getting into, in, into that list? Well, you know, I think they could be small steps to start with. And and everybody, you know, everyone is, the first thing you have to define, everyone's different. So for me personally, it's the easiest person to draw on. I really want to ride my bike cross country. It's something that I always wanted to do. And I want to do it in, in, in not over four months. I want to do it in a way that's going to be even more challenging, faster. I can't afford all that time. So that's something I want to do. I want to paddleboard a hundred miles. I want to do, I have my own list of of things. And those are, physical things, but there's other things that I want to do. Silly things. I want to learn. I have a really hard time learning language for some reason. Just not wired that way. I want to learn the national anthem from 10 different countries. Hmm. It's not outrageous, but you know what? It's challenging enough for me that I'm going to have to invest a lot of time and and I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn, you know, I'll learn all, pick the 10 countries. I'm going to learn their anthem one by one. And trust me, for me, that's it's a hard, that's a hard thing to do for some reason. And so I have a bunch of stuff like that. They're not all physical. But what but what you do by doing it, again, not to sound like a broken record, is you're creating, you're working that muscle. That muscle. So when the tough road comes, you're not scared of it. Yeah, that's interesting. It kind of reminds me a little bit of meditation that you kind of like, pra- meditation is really called a practice because it's you practice for being present in those moments when you may later need it, you know, as opposed to that moment when you're actually sitting. And 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 that was another thing about Seal, it seems, is that he was very good at focusing on the present moment. Like he said the e- to, he said to you, the easiest day was yesterday. Today right. I'm going to get better. Uh, and that seemed to me very and he was and when he was running, you asked him, like, what are you thinking about? And he's like, I'm just focused right now. Yeah, he's so, focused on finishing. He's yeah. just he's very present. He was very in in the moment. And and just going back to your, the, the question you asked prior is because this popped in my head. You know, I'm constantly um, playing my own little game that no one even knows I'm playing around this concept of mental toughness. So if I were to walk into a sauna and there were three people in the sauna, immediately I'm saying, I'm not leaving this sauna until all those guys go out first. I don't want to be the first one out and be like mm. the weakest one. I'm going to tr- exert my muscle. It's, a, it's, a, it's an example, but it could be applied to anything. I'm always looking for things that I can kind of exercise that muscle. Well, it's interesting. There's a book, um, Super Better by Jane um, McGonigal. I might be saying her name wrong. And it discusses this idea that if you gamify as much as possible in your life, that's actually how you improve and get better as opposed to like, let's say, listening in a course or whatever. So it's an interesting concept to gamify mental toughness no matter where you are. Yeah. And it's funny, actually, prior to doing this podcast, I mean, I listened to other podcasts you were doing, and they were very straightforward. Like, a, here's your bio, here's what happened with Seal, here's here's this and that. And I was trying to think, you know, I want to actually kind of totally screw this podcast up, which would be really 
uncomfortable for me, and I'm not doing it, but I was really trying to think, what would be like just asshole questions to ask you? And I don't do that because it's just not me, but that would have been maybe way too out of my comfort zone, but it was the way I was thinking as I was preparing for this. Oh, give me one. Dude. Give me one. <laughs> I don't know. I oh, mean, that's I, okay. I, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I, I could have on a couple of occasions, but I just, it's just not my, uh, it's just not my style for at all. But, um, um, I mean, I think, I, like I said, I wrote down a whole bunch of things I learned. I, what I do is right after I finish a book, I'll write down everything I learned so I don't have to look back at the book uh, while I'm, I'm thinking because then I know I really learned it. Oh, one point you say about yourself, you're always trying to control the situation. So in every business context or other context, if you're in a situation with lots of people who are trying to do that, like other successful businessmen, for instance, is it too much of a battle of, like, what do you mean by control the situation and when does it become difficult to do it? Uh, I just meant, I mean, really, can, I mean, really control the consequence, like, um, not control the situation, control the meaning in like a, in like a bullying bossy mm -hmm. or like a, have an unfair advantage or anything like that. I just mean, I try to, I try to connect. I think that's really what I mean. And on a personal level, because because then it's hard to like let me down or it's hard to not do the deal. So the con control is a bad word. Um, but I kind of always have like a little bit of a B plan. You know, if I go into a situation like a fallback, maybe it's just an insecurity that I can at least bring up this conversation or bring up this or break it through humor or something, you, you know, I, I definitely not the smartest guy in the room. So I try to, you know, compensate by, having controlling it controlling it meaning to have a fallback that i can at least connect with the person and, and get out of a disc a, a, an uncomfortable thing even though i'm talking about all the stuff about comfort it's a, it's like a defense mechanism sort of well when you get uncomfortable it's a way of dealing with it yeah to fall, find the different somehow bring it back to a point where you can get comfortable again that's right. how you learn to be uncomfortable right and so at one point in some other, I think it was another interview, you mentioned how you wanted to kind of extend this further. You wanted to get five more people living in your house for 31 days at a time or whatever and, and learn new things. Like, is this something that you've thought about or? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's like, I love reading about inspire, you know, reading about inspiration and motivation and all this stuff and self-help. Um, but there's nothing like living with it and having lived with someone that's so inspiring and so I learned, got so many nuggets that I realized that, you know, that's the best way to really learn. So I want to continue the series and live with, you know, four or five other really interesting people. I'm going to throw you on the list. All right. <laughs> Look, I sound, it sounds like I want to do You don't have to own this. anything. You could, I'm like your, being, I'm like your whatever, it's Airbnb. You live well, with well, me. Well, it's funny because that's what I was inspired by Seal just having like a backpack because literally... Uh, as I mentioned to you before the podcast started, I only have one bag of my belongings. I have nothing else. I have no address. I have no place right now that I call home. Uh, and, you know, there's there's both good things and bad things about that. But the good thing is there's this enormous sense of freedom. Even if you, it doesn't mean you have no responsibilities. It doesn't mean you're not a hard worker. But there's an enormous kind of feeling of freedom that I built for myself as I got to that point. And... It, mean, it, it means less reliance on money. It means less reliance on other people or things, but you could then do what you want. Not in a selfish way, but you want to do what you want. I have one, it's one word. It's called genius. <laughs> I don't know about that. It's I'm genius, not the smartest no, person in the room. It's great, it's great, it's great. I love it. I'm so, I love when you told me about that. And um, 
I understand it. I can relate to it. So Jesse Itzler, living with a seal, 31 days training with the toughest man on the planet. I honestly didn't know what I was going to expect from this book, but it was funny. It was well-written. I learned a lot. I really want to apply the principles uh, that you mentioned here. That we, we talked about everything, actually, that was on my list. So uh, it's an incredible story, and I hope you do another book or make a TV series out of this or something. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great way to live. Thank you so much. Thanks, I Jesse. Didn't, I didn't know what to expect either coming in here. Oh, well, I hope— And I learned a lot, and I'm going to apply it too. I hope it was a little bit outside your comfort zone. <laughs> I was going to push further, but I just couldn't do it, so— No, it's great. Thank you so much. Thanks. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Thanks for listening. Did you know I come out with new episodes every Tuesday and actually now I'm thinking of coming out with more episodes per week. If you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode and I have a lot of great interviews coming up. It's really easy. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show and click subscribe. And if you don't have iTunes, you can subscribe on Stitcher. Again, thank you so much. I really hope you do this. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.